engaged and we'll get engaged. We've been gathering as a church weekly on Sunday morning for seven years. Seven years, people. And, uh, and you, you, uh, you, I don't know about you, but I feel like it's been 50 years. No, um, I don't know about you, but it has been an amazing seven years. And as I was sitting over there and I was thinking about the fact that seven years ago this month, I stood before a group of people for the very first time to begin to cast vision and talk about who are we as a church, what is God calling us to. I was thinking about the fact that my oldest, who is now 13, and in the eighth grade was the age of my youngest, who is six years old. And so I don't know about you and how long you've been a part of this church, but for, but for me and for Jeannie, uh, we have really lived the, the, the most substantive part of our lives as a part of this church. And it's been awesome. And before we started this church, I, I knew as I was thinking about what would it take to be a great dad and how am I going to raise my kids to know and love God and to love others, I knew something was in my heart and it went a little something like this. I don't want Christianity just to be a place we go, but I want it to be something that we are. And, um, and, and I think that by God's grace and mercy that we together have experienced some of that in the last seven years. So I'm excited today, and I'm going to teach a passage, Luke chapter 10, one that I have taught several times in the life of this church, and it's one that has a verse in it that has awakened me on more nights than I can even count. It's, it's the verse that says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. I love that verse, and I'm trying to decide what part of my body to get it tattooed on. So we, maybe we'll have a little bit of a vote or something. Um, some, of the, some of those of you that are real pagans and have tattoos, you can tell me how all that works. But uh, just kidding, just kidding, no judgment. You're cool. All right, so, so here's the thing. This year, in 2018, we have a really exciting vision. All right, it's actually one part of a vision that we are going to roll out tonight at the Vision Dinner, which is called Vision 2025. And it's a seven-year vision, so seven years has been complete. And I just want to say right here, I am no longer going to call what we're doing here a church plant. We are a church. We have seen God provide. We have seen God do things. We've seen evidence of the work of the Spirit and so let's just say, hey, okay, we've started. We, we're no longer being planted. Now we're growing. So this year, as we think about, okay, God, where are you taking us? We have one goal this year, and that is that we as a church community, all of us together, will ask, pray, and follow up on 10,000 prayer requests. And I introduced this to you last year. Sunday, but we're going to roll this out in pieces, but I want to just put it before you, 10,000 prayer requests. And as I said, this one-year goal is a part of a larger seven-year vision that we're going to share more with you about. Now, if you've not signed up for the vision dinner tonight, I want to strongly encourage you to come. Uh, it is at 5.30. We do this one time a year. Please come, prioritize it. If you're having some kind of major surgery, then cancel it. And be here, okay? If there's any other excuse that you feel like is good, you know, you're sick, you know, whatever. I don't care about any of that kind of stuff. I just want you to be here. And I'm not going to be the only one talking. It's going to be 
uh, represented by a group of leaders, all of whom have worked for, for hours and weeks and months in preparation for rolling out to the church what our seven-year vision is going to be, Vision 2025, okay? And the question that we're going to be answered is, where are we going in the next seven years? And you might ask the question, I'm getting ready to teach Luke 10, but I, if I'm you, I'm wondering, like, does a church really need a vision statement, right? Does the church really need a vision statement? Well, I'm inspired by the words uh, of a leadership guru named Ken Blanchard. Where he said, why is it important to have a clear vision? Because leadership is about going somewhere. If you, and your people, if you and your people don't know where you're going, your leadership doesn't matter. So a stated seven-year vision and a one-year goal is meant to help us to know how we're going to fulfill what is every church's God-given mission, and that is to glorify Him and to make disciples. I mean, every church is supposed to glorify God and make disciples. Every Christian is supposed to do those things. Um, but uh, a vision idea, a vision goal, vision statement, vision phrase is, uh, is necessary so that we can know what is our part and how are we going to do that. And here's what I know. You all have a lot going on. I have a lot going on. There's lots of opportunity, lots of noise out there, good and bad. And an unclear vision and no goals will leave people confused and without a real sense of what you're a part of. But you're a part of something significant. You're a part of something that will last beyond your life. I don't know about you, but that excites me. That really does excite me. So this idea of where are we going... I want to introduce Luke chapter 10 by taking you back a little bit, because I do think that it's important for us to recall how this all began. It's helpful to reflect on where we were even prior to seven years ago that started what is now a church in Montrose that didn't exist before. So the seed that was in my heart that is now flourished and grown and been planted in the hearts of others and in this community that's called Neartown Church actually started more than a decade ago. I was on staff at a large suburban church, lots of people listening each week to, uh, to sermons, and I lived the dream in church life. It was kind of like many celebrity status you know I'd go to the Kroger near the church and they'd be like hey aren't you the guy who preaches in that large service and I'm like yes do you want my autograph you know I'm pretty awesome you know and and but all the while I began to wonder about places in the world where there was not a strong witness of gospel-centered Christ-exalting ministries you see the more I read studied prepared to preach the Bible to people that came and gathered, the more I was gripped with the sense that is in the Bible where God is doing something through people, sending people to those that do not yet know Jesus. And so the more fully I understand this, the more deeply I was gripped by it, and the more I believe that every person deserved the opportunity to hear about Jesus. So with the encouragement of my amazing wife, Jeannie, um, we began researching where these places might be. Where in the world is there a need for another church? And, and we, we looked all over the world, major cities like Dubai. We even considered like London. I mean, it, it, crazy places that we would be able to get to move to. And then we decided that we'd probably stay in the United States. So we looked at Chicago and Seattle and Nashville and San Antonio. And then we thought, man, we would really be 
willing to suffer in San Diego. You know, Lord, if we, somebody's got to do it, you know, we might as well be the ones. And, um, and each of these places we ask, is this the place God will send us to be a witness to the love of God through Jesus Christ? And at some point, God began stirring our hearts, um, not just our hearts, but the hearts of a few close mentors and friends. And so we began to share with them about what God was doing. And they, and they were encouraging me to lean into it, even if it required a big step of faith. And so we began to think about Houston. I mean, does Houston need another church? Houston's a mega city with a lot of mega churches. At that time, there was, <coughs> excuse me, I think 20 plus or maybe 30 mega churches, which is an average attendance of 2,000 people or more a week. I'm sure that's changed since then. But what I discovered was that inside the 610 loop, the research revealed that there was 95% unchurched. That's the research I found that made me think about inner loop. And we love the inner loop. Jeannie grew up down here. She went to the local elementary, middle school, and high school. I like coffee, so inner loop, right? And so we began to pray about it. And then I thought, you know what? I don't know what's going on, but let's just, let's just move in the city. We found a dumpy rent house. It was so dumpy we could afford it. And, uh, and it smelled bad. The person who lived there before was like the cat lady. No offense if you like cats, but I don't. Anyway, uh, they, it was just stinky. It was in bad shape. But we moved in. We kind of just went for it. I mean, it was literally like I called friends. I said, hey, can you guys help me move? And I went. I was like, tomorrow. And, uh, and so they came. And, Where are you moving? It's like nobody. Okay, just, just meet at my house. So we moved in town, and nobody really. We just went for it, you know. It was awesome and scary and all the light. And we had no plans at that point of planning a church. I just thought, i got to go somewhere right here. There's not a lot of strong Christians. And I'm going to see if this faith that is welling up and growing inside of me and Jeannie and in our family is, is real enough to actually work in the real world. I and mean, it's easy to show up in a church where everybody's like, oh, great sermon, you know, and just see, like, does this work where nobody, there are no people that asking me to preach sermons, right? <laughs> and um, and so, so uh, this, this thing began to happen. Next thing I know, uh, there's a group of about 20 people in my living room, and uh, one of which is a guy that I met at a very first event that we did at, my, at Kobe. He was going to kindergarten. My oldest son was going to kindergarten at the time we met this guy. And uh, he was not a Christian, but for whatever reason, we quickly became friends. And then he was the man of peace that invited us into his circle of friends. And um, things were happening. There's 20 people in my living room, and all of a sudden, like, there began to be a t- some talk in the spring of 2010 of like we need to, like we need to organize as a church. God's doing something here, and so I, I like to tell people about the the time that early on, before anything was really beginning to take shape, I knew we needed to pray. I knew we needed to ask God because it was going to be expensive and hard and and require a lot of sacrifice. It was going to be a grind, and and um, and so I used to I call up Jesse Outlaw and John Kreitz, and I would go pick them up. They lived in the neighborhood. They were some of the only people I knew that lived in the neighborhood. I'd pick them up. They're now elders at this church. And I'd say, hey, let's, I'm going to go pick you up 9 o'clock at night. Let's just drive around the neighborhood and pray and talk and dream and ask God, what are you going to do? And uh, that turned into something. He drew other people to the vision for this new church. I resigned from where I was at before. They told me I was an idiot. I said, you're probably right. But you know what? I know this. God's calling us to something. I don't know what it looks like. It went from 20 people gathered in a living room to we launched in January of 2010. Uh, 
pre-launch, we called it. And what you do in church planning is you call it pre-launch the first few months because you know you're going to screw stuff up. So if people go, hey, you didn't get this right, you go, like, we're still in pre-launch. You know, come on, give us a break. And then we launched formally in March. We basically started meeting in January of 2010. And I didn't know much about church planning. I didn't really know. I mean, now there's lots of resources and lots of networks and teams. But that, back then, I didn't know about a lot. But I had three deep convictions. We had three deep convictions. The team did that I think have shaped who we are as a church. And I'm going to tell you what they are because they come out of this passage, Luke chapter 10. The first deep conviction is this. Every person deserves an opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ in clear and compelling ways. Every person deserves an opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ in clear and compelling ways. This is why Jesus, in Luke chapter 10, sends out people in twos to villages and towns around them. So Jesus has come, he's he's begun his ministry, he's doing miracles, there are people that are gathering around him. There's at least 72 disciples at this point in his ministry that we pick up in Luke chapter 10. And it gets to the point where, where he's... He's moving towards Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem he's going to be crucified. Luke chapter 9 says he sets his mind on Jerusalem. Like he's going to Jerusalem, but on the way he's actually going to send his disciples before him, and his disciples are going to go out before him, and they're going to tell people that the kingdom of God is near. God is doing something in a new way, and his name is Jesus, and and he's, he's coming here. And uh, so look in Luke chapter 10, verse 1. It says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. See, Jesus is on this search and rescue mission, and he's sending disciples on a search and rescue mission. Christ followers are to search for those who have not heard about Jesus in a clear and compelling way so that they can tell them that without Christ they'll be eternally separated from God. And this is the beautiful, simple work of every Christ follower. And I realize that some of you have had church experiences where that beautiful, simple work has gotten covered up by religious routine, maybe rules. But the beautiful, simple work of every Christ follower is to go. There's this incredible parable in Matthew chapter 15 that helps us more fully understand the heart of God for those who have not heard about Jesus. Here's the setting in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus is spending time with sinners. That's a cool part of the Bible, I think. Come on. I mean, Jesus is not hanging out with the religious people as much as he's hanging out with the people that the religious people don't like because they are far from God. I mean, that ought to comfort some of you because some of you are real sinners. I mean, let's be honest. So Jesus is hanging out with sinners. The religious people don't like it. And and I've wondered, like, why are the sinners drawn to Jesus? I mean, he is a religious leader. Why are they drawn to him and not repelled by him? Here's why. Because Jesus was the real deal. His faith and his message was not rule-based and just externally focused. It wasn't an empty religion that was espoused by the other religious leaders. There was something different about Jesus. So the religious leaders did not like that Jesus was hanging out with these sinners 
And they said in chapter 15, verse 2 of Matthew, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. I imagine them, you know, standing around together like, how dare he? He receives sinners and he eats with them. Does he know how this is going to ruin his reputation? But Jesus didn't care. Because Jesus is all about finding people who do not know God. And then Jesus tells them this parable. These religious leaders are all upset. And he, he like, kind of gets them with the parable. It's kind of a passive-aggressive way of, like, you know, telling them the truth. So he told them this parable, Matthew chapter 15, verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the, the one that is lost until he finds it? So here's the parable. You have a hundred sheep, one leaves. You have your 99, but you have in mind the fact that you've got one that's gone, and that one is really important. So he's saying, every one of you would leave the 99. They're comfortable, they're protected, and go find that one who's out there and in danger. When he has found it, verse 5 says, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, check this out, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is the heart of God. The heart of God is that every, every person deserves an opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ in a clear and compelling way. And this is stunning. And I mean, at least I was stunned by it prior to starting this church because I spent 60 hours a week on the 99. And I had no friends, no real genuine friendships with people that didn't share my faith. And what I found to be true is that is true about most Christ followers. Why? Because sometimes what we think, God, oh, yeah, I'll take heaven. I'll take Jesus. I'll take this set of moral standards. And let me just kind of take it and operate by it and live among those people who share that belief system, which makes me feel even better about it, and stay away from all of those sinners. But Jesus hung out with sinners, and I thought to myself, like, if I'm a Christ follower and I'm following Jesus, then I'm going to be hanging out with sinners. I'm going to be hanging out with people that do not share my faith in Christ. And that was a problem. I mean, I felt like that was like a major problem, and it conflicted with my belief. My lifestyle conflicted with my belief because I was saying that, that every person deserves an opportunity to meet Jesus and that Jesus hung out with sinners. I mean, it's right there in the Bible, but I wasn't doing it. And there were some others that were with us in the early days that felt the same. And so I was determined to make friends, some that are not Christians. I was determined. And I had people criticize me for it. Like, Russ, you're changing, man. I'm like, well, good, you're dumb. I didn't say, okay, whatever. All right, so Luke chapter 2, 10 verse 2 is the verse that I've been awakened by multiple times. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is, this is a gripping idea. Like, God is already working in this community, right? God is already doing things. It's not like God was just left this community um, or was never here. No, God is in this community. He is working. There are things growing up in this community. And what God is doing is he's saying, hey, I'm calling you to go work the harvest. I'm calling you to go work the harvest. And in the early days in this church, there was a group of people. I wasn't the only one. My wife and I and, and about 20 others were saying, yes, we feel like God is sending us into this harvest. You see, here's why it matters so much. The Bible 
teach us that every person will die someday and stand before Jesus to give an account for their lives. If a person has repented of their sin and placed their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin, they will be counted as righteous and hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. For those who have not, they will receive the just penalty for their sin and be separated from God in a place called hell. The good news is this, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance and faith. So what I'm saying to you is, if you've not yet crossed over the line of faith, I beg you, I plead with you to step over the line of faith. Trust Christ. And if you have stepped over the line of faith and you are trusting Christ, then now our mind and our heart and our energy should be about the things that Jesus' mind, heart, and energy was about. And that is introducing people that are far from Jesus to him in clear and compelling ways. It's not just the work of pastors. I have the unique privilege of standing before you and opening God's Bible, but the work of being a Christian among non-Christians is the work of every Christian, not just the work of pastors. And since the beginning, we've, by God's grace, seen people, many people cross over the line of faith, and some of those have been baptized along the way as a public demonstration of their faith in Christ. In fact, next week, we are baptizing a man who came to faith as a part of this church's ministry, Anthony Diaz. He's going to be here next week, and we're going to baptize him. He just became a believer. And not only that, and probably more of what we've seen is that there have been a whole lot of people that have come in saying, yes, I'm a Christ follower, but not fully comprehended what it means to live out their faith where they live, work, and play. It's many of you. Second conviction is this, is that the Christian faith compels us to go. More specifically, we go having rejected the idols of comfort and security. We boldly go into places to live among those who do not share our faith in Christ. I've already touched on this a bit. So when I was in like the ninth grade, I heard this story at a youth church event that went a little something like this. Imagine you were on a cruise ship. Raise your hand if you've ever been on a cruise. Personally, ain't no way I'm going on a cruise. I'm not being stuck on a boat with a bunch of people I don't like out in the middle of the ocean. So if you're thinking about getting me a cruise vacation with my wife, you might just want to send Jeannie and a friend or something. But anyway, it's not gonna, anyway, I've never been on a cruise. I have no desire to go on a cruise. I'm going to delete that from the podcast. That doesn't matter. All right. Um, <laughs> imagine that you're on a cruise and you're on the boat. And from what I understand, these things are quite amazing. I mean, there's like seven levels and there's pools and restaurants. And here you are. You're at the, you're at the top. I mean, it's like the VIP level. And you're at the top, and you're, and you're just enjoying your, your ice-cold, you know, whatever, um, beverage of choice. And, uh, I mean, you're looking good, too. You're in your bathing suit. I mean, you worked out to get ready for this cruise. You know, you're looking good. You're feeling good. You're kind of tan. Somebody that you love is right, right near you. And you look over, and what do you see? There's people out in the water that are drowning. What do you do? What do you do? Oh, man, that's, those people are drowning. Look at that. Those people are drowning. You know. Huh. Do you do that? No. What would you do? You would go, hey, hey, 
swim faster. <laughs> no, you, you'd say, ah, sucks for you. You know, I'm sorry. You know, I, you know, no, that's not what you would say. You'd say, we got to get help. You would run to the nearest emergency phone. You'd call the captain and say, there's people overboard, people overboard, people overboard. Let's go get him. And what if, just what if you felt like you were prepared to be the one to get in the rescue boat to go get him? Would you do it? Absolutely you would. I heard that illustration in the context of years of my life where I was trying to decide if I was going to follow Jesus or follow the world. And, uh, and it gripped me because I thought to myself, like, if I am a Christ follower and there's people that are not in the boat, then I don't care about that because it's a big deal. It's the love, God has loved me, and it's the love of Christ that compels me to love others in this way. And it's not just about the conquest of, ooh, we got this many people in the boat. It's not about that. That's, a, that's an old scorecard in church life, I think. It's about the fact that we know God has rescued us. He's demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we're being drowning, we're being rescued by God through Christ. And so we go, we're compelled by that love to go and share the message with others. There are some of you here, and you're not Christ followers, and you might think, well, I'm not sure about all this, and I'm not sure about this guy. But surely you could at least say that if a person does believe that God became a man in the form of a person that is called Jesus, who lived a perfect, sinless life, died on a cross to pay the penalty for sin, was raised from the dead as a declaration of God's sovereign power and authority over death and sin. And for a person to repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus, accepting that free gift of God's grace, don't you, would you would have to probably, at least it would be logical to say, well, if somebody believes that, then they ought to care about people that are far from God and be willing to boldly go to those people. Luke says it this way when Jesus is telling his disciples what to do. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. I first read this, and I was like, so he's sending them out like naked? I mean, I got nothing. They're like, can you imagine, like, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. No, 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 that's not what it means at all. He, what he's saying here is that I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. It's going to be tough. I mean, you're, it's going to be tough. People are going to reject you. They're going to hate you. They're going to despise you. They're not going to, some of them are not going to accept you. Carry no money bag. In other words, you're going to have to trust God to provide for you. When we first decided to plant this church, I kid you not, I had no money, zero dollars. That's part of why I was, people thought I was stupid. And I, it was stupid. I had no money. We had no money. And there was, I wasn't the only one that made that decision. Like, we're going to do this. We have no money. We're not exactly sure what's going to happen. We're like, but if this is God singing, he's going to provide. Carry no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. In other words, you, you don't worry about providing for yourself. God is going to provide for you along the way, and I want you to go urgently. Greet no one on the road. Just, just go to where I'm sending you right away. There's a sense of urgency. For the first century person to go anywhere without a money bag, their knapsack provi with provisions and sandals, they would have had to reject comfort and security. Now, I know this is like getting all over you, some of you, because you're like, hold up, this feels very uncomfortable. Because, and here's why. It's because we live in a society, in a culture, in an area of the city where we idolize comfort and security. We do. And this is, in fact been a part of the human condition since the beginning of time. 
You see, we live in this part of Houston that we got cool coffee shops, unique restaurants, and beautiful homes, but it's a hard place where these idols reign. Not only that, but there is this strong ideology of secular humanism in this community. In other words, I have in my own intellect the ability to think with such precision and so wisely that I don't need any outside source or any outside power to help me process what's going on in life. I put together what I want to put together to basically be the idol or the God of the throne of my own life. I'll never forget one of my mentors said to me, prior to starting this church, he said the soul of that neighborhood is very hard. He knew because at one point he was working to plant a church down here. He said the spiritual soil of that neighborhood is very hard, is going to require a long time and a lot of digging. You'll be misunderstood, ignored, rejected, patronized, and opposed by many. This is the area church planters go to die. That's what they said. And in most people's mind, you will fail because it'll take a long time to get very many people. But you must keep grinding. And you know when he told me that, I thought, nah. You know how good of a preacher I am? <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, you, these people, you know, once they hear me preach, nobody cares about that. Nobody. Not one lost person that I've ever talked to has said to me, hey, so what's your preaching style? They don't care. You know what they care about? They care about somebody that's willing to not only profess a belief in Christ, but willing to demonstrate it in the wh- where they live, work, and play for a long time. That's the work of Christian ministry, especially in a neighborhood like this. And it will not be easy. It hadn't been easy. There's been some wonderful things about it, but it's been hard along the way, too. When we first began, I only knew of one other Christ-centered, Bible-teaching, contemporary church in this area. Crazy to think about. It's one reason we picked this area. Like, oh, we're going to go to the belly of the beast, man. There are churches in this neighborhood. Don't get me wrong. You can drive around and see them. But I know about most of them. And most of them, to survive, they have compromised on a, the most core of Christian theologies and doc, doctrines. And they are sustained by their private Christian schools. And so what happened at one time in this community, there was some strong Christian churches. But the community changed. But the churches didn't, because the church is focused on the 99 rather than staying mindful of the one. And, uh, and the community change, it happens in every community. People quit showing up. And then, as I said, the churches t- to survive, they begin to change their message rather than the means that they deliver that their message. Some became more rules-oriented, legalistic, and others became universalistic. By God's grace, we celebrate seven years and still excited about all that God is doing in our church on mission. And uh, by God's grace, right now, we have helped in varying degrees something like 20 churches begin inside the 610 loop. Some of them have come to us for strategic advice. Some of them have come to us for money. We are actually preparing to launch Sammy, who read the scripture today. He's going to be a planted church in the southwest part of the loop. So some of the, 
them have come to us for training. He's one of our church planting residents, or he's our only church planting resident this year. So we have been a part of something where, as best I knew at the time, there wasn't much going on. But now, when people are in the community, there's a strong Christian witness. It's not uncommon now for me to go into a coffee shop and to see two people doing Bible study together. Whereas when we first began, when I first started coming down in this community more regularly eight years ago, you would never find that. I mean, never. I look for it because that's part of my research. It seems like there's something happened in this community. So you may have been here for seven years and look around and go, okay, there's, you know, I don't know how many people's in here. What, 800? And, uh, and, you know, we should have more people. But I want you to know, we changed the scorecard. We said early on, we're not going to focus solely on getting people in a room for a service on Sunday morning. We're going to invest time, energy, and resources in this community, in the larger collaborative work of church planting, because we're going to say, God, you're doing something in this community, not just in us, but through us, in collaboration with many other churches. And that's what you're a part of. One more point, conviction, and then I'll be done. God gives extraordinary supernatural power to ordinary people who walk in faith. Jesus tells his disciples in Luke chapter 10, verse 8, Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is there. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God is near. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town cleans your feet, we wipe off against you. So Jesus is saying, hey, go and do miracles. Do the supernatural, right? Which would have been awesome for those disciples because they've seen Jesus do the, the supernatural. And now he's telling them, now you get to do the supernatural. And go into a town, if you're received, speak a blessing. If they receive you, stay for a while. If they don't, walk to the edge of town and say, this town has not received Jesus, and they will suffer the consequences for it. Well, in verse 17 of the same chapter, after they've gone out and come back, it says, the 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. You see, God gives extraordinary supernatural power to ordinary people who walk in faith. And you might say, well, those disciples, they must have been awesome. Here's the thing about the disciples. The disciples were ordinary people. They were, when they were selected and called by God, they were society, in society not the most educated. They were fishermen, many of them. But God picks ordinary people to do extraordinary things. You know why? Because he gets glory. The Spirit of God working through you as an ordinary person will allow you to see extraordinary things. Let me tell you something. I grew up in a trailer park in Oklahoma. That's true. I was trailer trash. I'm going to get that tattoo. Maybe that's why I should get a lower back tattoo. (laughs) For part of that time, it was just my sister, my mom, and I. Now, on my father's side, alcoholism and divorce marked the generation. So we had almost nothing, and I was an at-risk kid, like classic at-risk kid that for, for many reasons uh, could have gone down the path of having a troubled youth, a troubled adulthood, and causing a lot of trouble for other people. But God, man, God picks sometimes the white trash kid from Oklahoma who grows up in a trailer with no good history of strong men in their lives 
It's not because I'm great or I'm smart. It's just because God does this. This is the way he does stuff. I drive by that trailer park every now and then when I'm in Tulsa. That's where I grew up. And I look down at those old, beat-up, busted trailers. And I say, God, thank you that for whatever reason, you said... I want to pick you and a group of people to do something in the center of the fourth largest city in the United States. To pastor an amazing church with amazing people, with medical professionals, teachers, investment bankers, business owners, and all the rest. In a community where church planners go to die. But here we are, seven years in. And I know about you. But I feel like this year is going to be something different. We're going to see God do something in and through us as we set our hearts and minds on this goal of 10,000 follow-ups on prayer requests in 2018. And I want you to know that we need you to be a part of it. You say, I've only come to this church a few weeks. You know what? You can find other churches with more bells and whistles, but here's the deal. This church is the kind of church you can fit in if you want to be a part of something that will last beyond your own life. There are other places that put more emphasis on, on, on the smoke machines and, and all that. And there's nothing wrong with all that kind of stuff. They're going to have that kind of stuff in heaven. I feel certain of it. Um, but if you want to be a part of a group of people that say, you know what, we're going to go for it. We believe that every person deserves to hear about Jesus. We're going to reject the idols of security and comfort. And, and, and we believe that God can use ex- ordinary people to do extraordinary supernatural things in the power of His Spirit, then this is the place for you. If you've been here for seven years and you at any level are feeling a little weary, you've been setting up and tearing down, you've been uh, working in the kids' area, stuck back in the back, dealing with the preacher's kids, <laughs> and there's any part of you that's weary from setting out the Lord's Supper or running the sound. I want you to know that what you're a part of and the effort that you've made is not in vain. We don't measure success by how many people come to Christ or how many people we get in a room. We measure success by faithfulness. Are we doing what God wants us to do? And we'll let God sort out all the rest. So what I want from you is for you to commit, first of all, to coming tonight to the vision dinner, and second of all, for you to be a part of this church this year in a big way. For us to be able to accomplish this one-year goal, all of you are going to have to prioritize the Sunday gathering in a major way. And we would strongly encourage you to get into a midweek loop group also. So that we together can execute what is a very well laid out plan by our team of leaders to see 10,000 follow-ups and prayer requests, and then we're just going to let God sort out the rest. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about it, and I do believe our best days are ahead. Let's pray together and think about these things. God Almighty, we love you. God, you are a good God, and you have shown us um, your heart for this community, God, and we I've enjoyed the last seven years of being a church plant, but now, God, we move forward as a church that you've planted for your glory. 
for your fame. We believe that people that don't know Jesus deserve to hear about him in a clear and compelling way. We're not asking for ease, comfort. What we're asking for is a supernatural work of your spirit. Many stories of you answering prayers, God. I need you to breathe life into us, into this, in a new and fresh way. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.